I remember December the 1st, 2018, as if it was yesterday. I attended the Fairview Heights Baptist Church Christmas musical. And that was a wonderful and great event. I went home uh, to an empty house. Uh, since my wife was not there, she was in Detroit uh, celebrating the birth of our granddaughter. I decided to have some barbecue from Phillips, uh, leftover barbecue. Uh, it was delicious. It was wonderful. And I chose to have some uh, right before I went to sleep uh, with the goal that I was going to get up early Sunday morning and work on the message that I had to preach that Sunday. So it was my intent to be awakened by my alarm clock because I was tired, I was exhausted, and I thought the best way to get up would be by the alarm clock. Little did I know that I would wake up early, but I was awoken by a stroke that was accompanied by vertigo. And I won't go into all of the details, uh, but that stroke immediately impacted my sense of balance. And that impact lasted for a number of months and almost a year. And I can remember on many occasions walking uh, with my wife through the neighborhood. And as I would walk through the neighborhood, I felt myself either drifting a little bit to the left or taking a few steps and drifting to the right. Uh, my equilibrium was off. And I can remember even coming back to church and trying to get on the basketball court. And it seems like if a ball came my way, it was quickly by me because I couldn't react in time. What happened to me physically happens to Christians spiritually. They lose their balance. They lose their spiritual equilibrium. As they're walking the Christian life, as they're going down the path that God would want them to go, sometimes they find themselves drifting to the right or to the left and not going down that center line that God would want us to walk down. John wants us to maintain our balance in living the Christian life. There's a tendency that we will be pulled one way or the other and go to one extreme or the other. And that's not the kind of Christian life that God calls us to live. God calls us to a balanced Christianity. God calls us to a Christianity where we don't veer to the left, don't veer to the right, but we go straight down the path that he has designed for us. In our passage today, John gives us some guidelines to make sure that we don't lose our sense of balance in the Christian life. He gives us some guidelines that will help us to maintain our spiritual equilibrium. 
And I want us to see those three guidelines that he gives us in our text. The first guideline for maintaining spiritual balance is that faith must be balanced with love. Faith must be balanced with love. Faith cannot be separated from love. There is a tendency that some people lean toward faith to the exclusion of love. And there are other people who lean toward love to the exclusion of faith. We as Christians need to understand that balanced Christianity means that we hold on to both. It's not either or, but it's both and. And so in verse 1, John gives us this guideline to make sure that we don't separate faith from love in our walk with God. The words that are found at the beginning of verse 1 where John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ describes faith in the Christian life. Everyone who believes that is zeroing in on the important role of faith in our walk with God. And you know, as well as I know, that faith is one of those important virtues in the Christian life. We've been looking a lot at love, but when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, John talks about faith. And he talks about faith in the sense of believing, being committed to, being dedicated to, being devoted to. And he speaks of an individual who believes that the historical Jesus is the Christ. Here's a person that is committed, deeply believes, is convinced within his heart, her heart, that the historical Jesus, the Jesus that was born of Mary, that that Jesus indeed is the Christ. And that is one of the profound teachings about who Jesus is in the word of God. And in reality, that is a theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus is the Christ. Every child of God should have that etched in his or her mind, that when they think about who is Jesus, among many things, Jesus is the Christ. It was our Lord himself when he was on earth. And he was with his disciples and he asked them a very important question. He asked him what were others saying about him. And then he said to them directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter opened up his mouth. And according to Mark chapter 8, verse 29 said, thou art the Christ. Matthew's version is a little bit longer. Matthew says that Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. But when our Lord 
wanted to know who he was. Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one who has promised to Israel. You are the one who has come into the world. You are indeed the Messiah. And our Lord embraced what Peter said, but added to what Peter said. Our Lord immediately went on to tell Peter, I'm going to be handed over to men and they're going to kill me and I will rise from the dead. The the Lord wanted Peter to know that the Christ is a crucified Christ, that the Christ is a resurrected Christ. And, And here John is saying that the person who has that inner conviction, that that belief, that faith with regards to who Jesus is, believes that Jesus is the Christ, or as John said earlier, it's the opposite of the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ. John said that person is a liar. Who is the liar? According to 1 John 2.22, it's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Fundamental to our Christian walk is the faith, the belief, the conviction, the commitment that Jesus is the Christ. And John says that everyone... No exceptions at all. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. John says, the thing I can tell you about every person who has that conviction, that everyone who has that commitment, that that person has been born again and the source of their new birth is God himself. That is faith in the Christian life. It's not the whole picture, but, but it must be included in the picture that Jesus is the Christ. And the one who confesses that, the one who believes that, the one who commits to that is the one who has been and is born of God, has experienced the new birth that God is the source of. The words, everyone who loves the Father, describes love in the Christian life. John doesn't just talk about faith in our walk with God. He, he, he goes back and talks about love. Shockingly, right? No, we're so used to John talking about love in the Christian life that we really almost don't want to hear him anymore. Throughout the book, he has repeatedly told us about love in the Christian life. And here, John focuses in on the person who loves the Father, who loves God the Father, literally loves the one who causes others to be born again. That's who is meant by the Father. And John says the one who loves the Father, it can be said about that individual, 
that that individual loves the children born of the father. That's quite a statement. The one who loves the father loves the children of the father. Now, we'll look at that a little bit more later. But that's love when it comes to the Christian life. That there is a love for the Father, and that reality has love for the children of the Father. Love is vertical. Love is horizontal. Love is for God, but love is also for one another. Now, I want you to realize that when John talks about the one who has faith and the one who loves, he's not talking about two separate people. That's what we like to do. We like to divorce a person who believes that Jesus is the Christ from a person who loves the Father. But John joins them together. He talks about the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ and that one who loves the Father. And that's why we are saying balance Christianity. Christianity that has not lost its spiritual equilibrium is a Christianity that includes both love for the Father and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might not recognize it, but the reality is there are Christians who are not balanced in their walk with God in this area. They are prone to go to one extent or the other. They have the tendency to have faith in the sense that they have correct doctrine, correct beliefs, can dot all the I's and cross all the T's with regards to what the Bible teaches. That is, they have good theology. But that's not all that Christians are called to have. Yes, we're to have correct theology, but we become in balance when we just lean toward correct theology and we start ignoring the fact of ethics and practice when it comes to others. And there are some Christians who, who, who veer from the central path by practicing quote, love, and practicing ethics. They, they focus on that. And, and it's almost as if there's nothing in the Bible that talks about correct theology. And so they have the ethics, but they don't have the theology. And there's others who have the theology and don't have the ethics. And it's not either or, but it's both and. Balanced Christianity, Christianity that honors God, 
It's not either or, but both and. Faith must be balanced with love. And if you find yourself straying away from love by focusing in on faith, reading your theology books, got good theology, listening to theology on the radio all the time, et cetera, et cetera, and it never transforms itself into ethics, something is wrong. And if you have all of your time devoted to ethics or devoted, quote, to love, the horizontal aspect, and you forget your faith and your belief about Jesus Christ, you have gone astray also. Faith must be balanced with love. The second guideline for maintaining spiritual balance is that loving God must be balanced with loving others. Now, this was just spoken of at the end of verse 1, when John says that the one who loves God loves the children of God. In fact, this was spoken of earlier in verses 20 and 21, the sermon that was preached last Sunday when we talked about brotherly love. John exposed the individual in in verse 20 of chapter 4. The person said that, I love God. That's what comes out of his or her mouth. I love God. But he hates his brother. And John says, you can't love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen. It's an impossibility. We think it's possible. We think we can do it. But the word of God says, no, you can't. It's an utter impossibility to love God and hate your brother. That's what John has already told us. And he's going to drill that home again in verses 2 and 3. He wants us to realize that you cannot separate vertical love for God from horizontal love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. The the Christian life is not just about your devotion and your commitment and your love to God the Father and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but it also entails loving those that God has placed around you who are part of your spiritual family. We can have assurance that we love others. We can have assurance that we love others. That is, we can have assurance that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That that doesn't have to be something that is up in the air. That doesn't have to be something that I wonder about. John says in verse 10, 2, that we can know. That's his favorite terminology for assurance of being certain of different things. 
He's used it over and over again. We know, we know, we know, or you know, or you know. And here he says, we know, by this we know, that we love the children of God. And you would think that he would say the way you know is by doing it. You, You would think that you could know, I can know, that I love the children of God by just doing the acts and deeds of love. But that's not what John says here. The assurance doesn't come from the fact that we do deeds of love. He says the way that you can be assured, that you can be confident, that you can know beyond a shadow of doubt that you love the children of God is that you love God and keep his commandments. Did you hear that? The way that you can know that you love that fellow Christian who's part of the family of God, that Christian who is sitting right next to you, that Christian who's a member of Fairview, the way that you can know that is because you love God and you keep his commandments. That might seem strange, but what he's impressing upon us is that if you don't love God, you will not love those who are around you. And the guarantee is that if you do love God, that every time you do love God, that is assurance that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And John doesn't just mention loving God, but he also mentions here obedience. Obedience. So we can know. You can go home today and rest assured that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the way that you can know that is that you love God and keep his commandments. If you don't love God, if you don't keep his commandments, there will not be the conviction, there will not be the assurance that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. John says there can be assurance that we love others. But also he points out in verse 3 the evidence that we love God. There's concrete proof and evidence that a person loves God. And the evidence isn't what we think it is. We, we think if I say I love God, or if I sing the song, I love the Lord with all my heart, then that means I love God. But, but John doesn't go there. He doesn't want his readers to go there. John says, look, I'm going to tell you the, the, the concrete evidence. I'm going to give you the proof that seals the deal that a person loves God. And it has nothing to do with how much you study the Bible. It has nothing to do with how many degrees you have behind your name. It has nothing to do with your church attendance. 
John says it has all to do with this. He says this. I'm, I'm going to put this before you. This is how a person knows that they love God. In the way that they know that they love God. Thank you. <laughs> it won't go away, so you just have to endure. So I have. Thank you. So kind of you. I'm glad somebody thought of me. <laughs> yeah. So just, I'm sorry I don't sound like Barry White, uh, uh, but I don't know who I sound like, but uh, we will endure. I will endure. So John says there's concrete evidence that can be put before us that we truly love God. And he wants us to say, see it. He says, this is the love of God. This is love for God. What is, John, that you keep his commandments? That's what love for God looks like. Look at verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Nothing thrilling, nothing exciting, nothing that causes us to emotionally get jumping up and down, but it's the bare basics of Christianity. Here's the evidence. Here's the concrete proof that you love God that I love God, it's that we keep his commandments. God's committed will, as given in the Bible, as applicable to believers, when we obey the word of God, that is proof, that is evidence that I love God. Now, now you might want to point to other things. I might want to point to other things. But God in his word says, you want to know if you love me? Here's how you can know that you love me. You keep my commandments. And John is not writing in a vacuum. John didn't make this up. Remember, he's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 14 through 17, in the upper room discord, the Lord repeatedly told his disciples that the evidence of love for him, for Jesus, is obedience. I'm sorry I can't make that nice and clean and something that's palatable to us. But Jesus, three different times in John 14, said to his disciples these words. In verse 15 of chapter 14, if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. I'm I'm not making that up. That came out of the mouth of our Lord. That's what our Lord wanted his disciples to know. Disciples, if you truly love me, you will keep my commandments. And in just a few verses later, in John 14, 21, Jesus says, he who has my commandments, I'm sorry, 
Yeah, verse, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. The one who has my commandments, who possesses them, and who keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And, and if that were not enough, one more time, Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So there it is. There's the concrete evidence. John says the same thing to his readers in verse 3. John says the proof, the evidence, the undeniable proof that you and I love God is if we keep his commandments. Love for God cannot be divorced from obedience. The two go hand in hand. If there is no obedience, there is no love. You and I, many times each day, had the opportunity to show our love for God. Each time that we are solicited to sin, that we are tempted to sin, is an opportunity for us to say, I love God. If I yield to the temptation, the word of God says, I don't love him. At that particular time, if I choose sin, if I choose what I want, in contrast to what God wants, if I choose to yield to the temptation, and then just mark it down, at that moment, at that time, I do not love God. It doesn't matter if it's you. It doesn't matter if it's me. If I choose to say no to the temptation, if I choose to rely upon God's grace and God's enablement, then I'm saying, God, I love you. And I am committed to doing what your word says. And I resist the temptation. I choose not to sin. I wish I could make it glamorous. I wish I could make it pretty. But, but that's the bottom line, my friends. Not just for you, but for me. I, I can't stand before God and say, God, I love you because I preach your word Sunday after Sunday. I can't say that I love you because I shepherd the sheep. I can't say I do all of these things and that's my evidence. No, God says, Paul, if you love me, keep my Commandment. That's the evidence that a person loves God the Father. John is not looking at your overall life. He's not looking at your life when you get before God at the judgment seat. He's looking at your day-to-day walk with God. And you can say all that you want to say, 
Oh, I really do love him. I really do care about him. But when we choose to sin, at that point in time, we are declaring that we love sin, that we love ourselves, and that we don't love God. Now, I know there's ifs and ands and buts and pans and all of that stuff. But don't miss what John says here. This is love for God, that we keep his commandments. And he goes on to add that his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a weight. They're not, quote, difficult. They don't weigh the child of God down. It's not like a huge boulder falling upon us and we can't do anything about it. John says, no, his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not fierce and cruel. They're not weights that hold us down. Love for God must be balanced with love for others. Now, it's challenging to maintain this balance. And sometimes we think, well, loving God, that's easy. I wish it was easy. It ought to be easy because I have every reason in the world why I should love God. When I think about all that he has done, particularly in sending his son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, that I might have eternal life, him saving me, that is all the reasons in the world that I need to love him. But my stubborn, sinful self still struggles to love him. And it even is more serious when I think about, I have to love you. (laughs) And you have to love me because you don't look like God to me. You haven't done all the things that God has done for me and neither have I done it for you. But we're called on to love God and balance that with loving others. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love others as you love yourself. The third and final guideline for maintaining spiritual balance is salvation must be balanced with victory. Salvation must be balanced with victory. There's a tendency among Christians to stray away from having these two things stay together. Christians start to become in balance when they think that, yes, I'm saved, but there's no victory in being saved. We, we sing the song that there's victory in Jesus, but do we really truly believe that? And what John says in these verses is that, yes, salvation includes victory. And I hope these two verses encourage you. I hope these two verses uh, uh, causes you to be lifted up in your walk with God. That you don't have to be a defeated Christian. 
You don't have to be a Christian who's always falling down. That, that you can be a Christian that lives an upright, pleasing life to God. Sometimes we think that, yes, salvation is great. It saves me from the penalty of sin. But we forget that salvation saves us from the power of sin. We forget that there is victory in Jesus Christ, that I can live a life that honors God. So this guideline ought to encourage us that indeed there is victory in Jesus. Three times, John uses the phrase, overcomes the world. He keeps saying in these two verses, overcomes the world, overcomes the world, overcomes the world. That's victory, my friends. That's victory over this world system that we're not to love. This world system that is our enemy, that causes us and seeks to cause us to live lives that don't honor God. Notice in our text, the source of this victory over the world is the new birth. The the source of this victory is the new birth. I can have victory. Why? Because I have been born again. John says at the beginning there, verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, I don't know if you saw that. He he says, whatever, not whoever. When when he says whatever, he's just going to the furthest limits that he can. He's not restricting himself just to whoever, but whatever. Uh, If there's anything, anyone who has been born of God, that individual overcomes the world. John loves this word overcome. Uh, It's related to the shoe company, Nike. Uh But the idea we found in the book of Revelation when we preach uh, those seven letters of Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor, in each one of those letters, Jesus held out a promise to the one who overcomes. And we pointed out that the one who overcomes is the Christian. Not some super-duper Christian, but the Christian. Earlier in this book, in 1 John, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, John, writing to the young men that I take are all of the Christians in the church. Every Christian is a young man. He says to them, you have overcome the evil one, the devil. Now, he says to his readers, you have overcome the world. That is, whatever, whoever is born of God, who has experienced the new birth that God is the source of. Whoever that is, whatever that might be, that individual has overcome the world. Now, please don't misunderstand John. John doesn't mean that the world no longer exists. John doesn't mean that that Uh, means that you win every battle in the war. He's saying that when it's all said and done, 
The, the Christian will win the battle against the world. The Christian will overcome the world. Uh, there will be times that we will have battles and skirmishes with the world system that is headed by Satan that leads the values of God out and is made up of unbelievers. That world system seeks to conform us to this age. But John said we can overcome the world. And he says ultimately we will. No ifs, ands, buts about it. He can talk to his readers as those who have overcome the world. That's source of victory over the world is a fact of the new birth. Have you been born again? Has God given you new life in Jesus Christ? If so, you're an overcomer. You've overcome the world. The key to this victory over the world is our faith. John says in the last part of verse 4, and this is the victory which overcomes the world. And, and literally saying, this is the overcoming that overcomes the world. How do we overcome the world? What virtue? What's the key? John says it's our, our faith. Our personal faith in God. That, that faith that we exercise at the moment of salvation. That, that faith that causes us as we are walking with God to develop and to grow. He, he says the, the victory Rest in our faith. Believers overcome because of their faith. And then finally, he says in verse 5, what the foundation to this victory over the world is. And the foundation is a proper belief about Jesus. You want to know if you're going to overcome the world? Have you been born again? Do you have genuine faith? Do you have a proper belief about Jesus? We read in verse 5, John raises the question, Who is the one? Who is the one who overcomes the world? If someone were to ask you that question, who is the one who overcomes the world system? Who is the one who will stand and at the final day and would have won the, the war against the world? John says, I'll tell you who it is. It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. has a proper belief, a commitment, a conviction that goes back to verse 1, believing that Jesus is the Christ, but here, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And we talked about that last Sunday. Believing that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God 
who took upon human flesh and lived a perfect life and went to the cross and died and was buried and was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven and one day is coming again. The one who believes that in his heart, the, the one who can say, that's a conviction of my innermost being. I believe that the historical Jesus is the son of God. John says that's the one who overcomes the world. My friends, don't ever divorce salvation from victory. Don't go around as a Christian with your head hung down, thinking that even though you're a Christian, you cannot live the victorious life. God has made it possible for you and I to experience victory in Jesus Christ. I trust that these two verses are an encouragement to you. I trust that even though you might lose some battles, might lose some skirmishes in your walk with God, that you will realize that God has made it possible for you to win the war. Don't ever separate salvation from victory. I trust that God will use these guidelines to help us to maintain our spiritual balance and equilibrium. That as we live our Christian lives, we won't be drifting to the left or drifting to the right, but instead we will live a balanced Christianity. And that means that faith must be balanced with love. That means that love for God must be balanced with love for others. That means that salvation must be balanced with victory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a proper perspective on the Christian life. We know that we are prone to wander. We're prone to go astray, even as believers. We're prone to lose our spiritual equilibrium. Help us to follow these guidelines so that we can maintain our spiritual balance, so that we can practice a balanced Christianity. Drive home to us, Father, that it's not either or, but it's both and. May our faith be balanced with love. May our love for you be balanced with love for others. And may our salvation that you have richly provided be balanced with victory. Thank you that there indeed is victory in Jesus Christ. And I pray for any individual under the sound of my voice who might be struggling in their walk with you. I pray, O oh God, that you might grant them grace and enablement to experience all that you want them to experience in the Christian life. 
Thank you for your great love toward us. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for your provisions and your blessings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.